Well, some of you have heard me say that I feel like through the pandemic, I've found myself as a leader being like an, an amateur sociologist at times. Um, and I had what you might say was another interesting sociological experience this week that was surprisingly relevant to the gospel. And I know that the, the, the gospel reading today, and I know that, you know, pastors can make a sermon out of virtually anything, but this one was really, really interesting. On Wednesday, I listed uh, a computer monitor for sale on Facebook Marketplace. I don't spend much time at all on Facebook, but I needed to sell something, so felt like a good reason. It was a 2010, right, a decade-old cinema display from Apple that still works great, but is now incompatible with my 2020 laptop. Doesn't work with it. And here's the problem, though. Here's the, here was the problem with what happened this week. It looks just like Apple's current desktop all-in-one computer. There's actually one sitting up there for our, uh, if you want to look at it later and see what I'm talking about, called the iMac. They look just the same. They just look like a screen, right? And they discontinued the thing that I had, the separate monitor, and they integrated the actual computer just into the back of the screen. Ta-da, right? So aware of this potential confusion, I listed it specifically as the 27-inch cinema display, model A1316. And then, in the first line of this, the description, I wrote this. This is not, capital N, capital O, capital T, not an iMac. And then the potential customers just started pouring in. And I am not exaggerating. Virtually everyone still assumed it was an iMac. Some asking me for the hard drive size, the processor model, the gigs of RAM. So many that by Thursday morning, I edited the second line of the description to read, this is just a display. You will, capital W, I, L, L, need a separate computer to use this. The enthusiasm for my display stayed quite high. People texted, I'll take it, where can I meet you? How do you want me to pay you? And I would, by this point, text back, just in case, I'd reply, to be clear, you understand this is not an iMac, just a monitor, right? Every time, crickets. <laughs> At least five times that happened. Amateur sociologist that I've become I could think of three reasons for the confusion. Maybe they just could not bring themselves to read the whole description. We are deluged with information and communication, and we've become a skim-everything culture. Okay, I get it. Or maybe it was a frame of reference problem. Maybe because they knew nothing of the olden days of the cinema display, they presumed this could only be an iMac. It certainly looks exactly like the latter, and they've never heard of the former. Okay, Boomer, that's not just a monitor. I know you don't know this, but there's a computer in there. We'll take it, except there isn't a computer in there. Or thirdly, maybe the idea of getting a working iMac for $200 was just too enthralling to let the disappointing details deter them. Maybe a hurried offer or an inquiry about the specifications would transform this stepdaughter of a monitor into a Cinderella princess of an all-in-one computer. And I'm being facetious now, right? But it's interesting, isn't it? 
I don't know what it means, except that it really didn't seem to matter what I actually had or described. They could only see an iMac. Except for the lady who drove all the way from Charlotte to buy it, saying, oh, it's great to find one of these. These are rare. I almost hugged her when she arrived. <laughs> like, you're right. We're kindred. <laughs> so here in the gospel reading in Mark 6, Jesus, he's in continuity with his tradition. He's not in spite of it. He is teaching on the Sabbath in his hometown synagogue of Nazareth. And his reputation has preceded him. He's blowing their minds in real time. They are astonished at first. And then, despite everything, despite everything, all the wisdom, all the miracles, all they can see is a Nazarene they already know. Wait a minute. Wait, wait. We know his family. We know his station. Where is all this coming from? How could he be this wise? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Those are carpenters' hands. It can't be right. This can't be good. Who does he think he is? Verse 3 says they took offense at him. The Greek word is scandalizo. This seeming contradiction between Jesus, the miracle worker, the wise one, and the Nazarene boy scandalized them. All they could see or wanted to see or were willing to see was the son of their limited imagination, not the son of God. Their own prophetic tradition as Jews promised something remarkable from God was going to happen in their midst for someone to finally come to them in power and wisdom. Their Messiah was to come. But as it turns out, Jesus did not fit in their frame. The truth had to come on their terms. What Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us about this story is that they could not get past what they knew of Jesus' humanity and his origin story. What they knew, they couldn't get past it to accept that he was, at the very least, a prophet of God to whom they should listen. Even miraculous works were not enough to overcome their bias. This bias and resistance followed Jesus everywhere, even after he raised Lazarus from the dead. But to me, one of the most interesting details of this story is in verse 6. Jesus marveled at their unbelief. Literally, he was impressed that they could see and hear what they had seen and heard and still respond in unbelief. That Greek word is interesting, um, the, the Greek word for, for impressed is really interesting because it, uh, it, it's not exactly um, negative, though this is not a good thing going on here. It's just a little bit positive. Jesus is impressed. He's kind of saying, wow. It's, but it's the kind of impressed that I felt when I heard that, this, that guy Joey Chestnut ate 73 hot dogs to set the world record, right? You're like, wow, how's that even possible? And just, Why? <clears throat> why? So this word is interesting. Jesus is just, why? how is this possible? It's difficult to reconcile. And so Jesus is marveling that there could be such a gap between what has happened, what's been made clear, and the way they're responding. Even knowing the fate of the prophets, knowing his own destiny, Jesus genuinely marveled that his own people would not believe in him. Miracles and all. This tells us Jesus himself 
is astounded at the human capacity for unbelief. At how profound the problem really is. How precarious our relationship to truth can really be. Even when it has the divine potential to set us free, to fulfill our hopes, to fulfill promises. In Nazareth, they've seen enough to be uncomfortable. Their response is visceral. Their rejection in the face of Jesus' obvious wisdom and power is arguably emotional. So they reject. In a letter to a friend about faith in the incarnation of Christ, among some other things, the novelist Flannery O'Connor wrote, wrote these words. She said, The truth does not change according to our ability to stomach it emotionally. A higher paradox, and I'll return to that, a higher paradox confounds the emotions as well as the reason. And there are long periods in the lives of all of us when the truth, as revealed by faith, is hideous. It's emotionally disturbing. It's downright repulsive. There is question then whether faith can or is supposed to be emotionally satisfying. Interesting. She goes on, I must say the thought of everybody lolling about in an emotionally satisfying faith is repugnant to me. I believe that we are ultimately directed Godward, but that this journey is often impeded by emotion. I don't think you're a jellyfish, she says to her friend, but I suspect you of being a romantic. First of all, I, would, I, you know, I think that we'd all be better off if we had friends who said things like, I don't suspect you of being a jellyfish, but I do suspect you of being a romantic. <laughs> to be that honest with us. But second, I think her point is well taken. The truth is challenging. It's unsettling. It's even disturbing. At times, it can be repulsive. We can't simply rely on how it makes us feel all the time. And I imagine how that might land in a very therapeutic culture. I don't have time to spend on it, but go back and read the way that Paul in 1 Corinthians and our reading today processes his own pain and weakness. doesn't feel good. Her point is well taken. To the degree we resist the discomfort of the truth of Christ is the degree, the degree to which we find ourselves more aligned with Nazareth and a tradition that rejects her own prophets than with disciples of Jesus. In John's Gospel, chapter 6, Jesus offended nearly, intentionally offended nearly everyone in earshot by saying they must eat his flesh and drink his blood or they have no part with him. People were repelled. They were disgusted. But a handful of disciples stuck around saying, where else could we go? You have the words of life. There is an often subtle but serious impulse in all of us because of the power of sin. And it's the reflex towards self-preservation. Self-protection lurks beneath the ways we make meaning and make sense of our world and our circumstances. It becomes a barrier to truth. It causes us to not only be careful, but to be controlling about our own lives and our circumstances. Our staff learned in a recent uh, leadership training that to address our own self-preservation and to keep it from becoming crippling to our relationships and crippling to our potential influence, three questions are crucial to ask. We individually need to ask them. Churches need to ask them. What am I afraid of losing? 
What am I trying to hide? What am I trying to prove and to whom? I think these are helpful for all of life. And I think they're vital to our receptivity to the gospel with all its challenges to our curated comfort and our default sense of control. Would you agree with that? So here's what I want you to consider. We are Nazareth and they are us. There are a thousand ways the gospel can and will scandalize us. Beautiful as it is, ultimately meaningful and saving as it is, it will scandalize us. And there are a thousand surface reasons we might invoke to never truly embrace the depth of what God has done and is doing through the incarnation of the Son of God, through His message from stem to stern, through His ministry, through His suffering, through His resurrection, and through His promised return that always feels too far away. It might be our own pain that causes us to resist. It might be our politics. It might be our pride. It might be our shame. But it is certainly, I believe, our fear of loss or rejection. Like Nazareth's rejection of Jesus on the grounds of his obvious human origins, what they already know. There are manifold ways that we reject the divine and we reject the eternal by trying to narrow them to the human and temporal as we understand them. But here's the real scandal, and call it the higher paradox in Sister Flannery's letter. God has always, always, always chosen to communicate himself and his will in the apparent compromised condition of humanity through imperfect men like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David and the list goes on he has communicated his will through the rejected prophets and their pathos through a whole people whose chronic amnesia ironically threatened their unique call to help the world remember God to return to God And most importantly, it was the will of God to come to us with a sweaty brow and rough hands. A carpenter's son from the backwater of Galilee. Mary and Joseph's boy with all those earthly siblings. And despite all the power of heaven at his direct divine command, his human body was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the punishment that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. Friends, it is the glory of God to stoop. As the psalmist said, the Lord who is seated on high stoops down to the heavens and the earth to raise the poor from the dust and lift the needy from the ash heap and to make them sit with princes. He comes to be a Nazarene for the Nazarenes. It is the glory of Christ to serve and to call us to the same. This is the scandal. But instead of benefiting from Jesus entering into imperfection and into weakness and mediating his message through the words of imperfect human instruments who are actually created for the very purpose of proclamation, we find ourselves using this very thing against God, just as Nazareth used Jesus' humanity against him. 
We find ourselves scrutinizing. We find ourselves suspending our belief until Jesus proves himself to us on whatever hometown terms we've set for him. I don't know if you do that, but I do. Our culture even tells me that I am a hometown in my own right. That I'm defining and I'm defending and preserving my own sense of self by my own limited understanding and experience. Hometown is comfort. Hometown is control. Hometown is the illusion of certainty. And this makes each of us a walking Nazareth, primed and ready to reject the prophet. And it makes us together, or can make us, like Israel, the one whom the prophet decries this morning, in our Old Testament reading, makes us a collective Nazareth that will not allow the prophet to deliver his word. A word we may not want to hear, but is exactly what we desperately need to hear. A word on which our hopes really hang. So what happens in Nazareth, or rather what doesn't happen in Mark 6, is what can happen or not happen in us. We get the corresponding results of our conditional or absent faith. What happens? Jesus is small in our minds. He's small in our hearts and small in our lives. Small enough to sort and to manage, but often not large enough to worship or to obey. The temporal and the natural remain a veil over our eyes between us and the eternal. In the end, we will see only what we want to see or are willing to see. Where churches believe, let me, this is so vitally important. Where churches believe Jesus is alive, Jesus is alive. Where we will receive him only on our limited terms, that tends to be the Jesus we get. And I'm not saying that grace isn't present when we doubt or wrestle, because it is. And I'm also not saying Jesus can't graciously bless our socks off when our hearts are cold toward him, because he can and he does. But the truth remains, folks. Painful as it can be, following him and experiencing the true power of his presence is a matter of faith. And faith comes by hearing the word of God, by hearing what is true, even if it doesn't feel true to us, feel right to us, even if it's repugnant. It comes by listening for truth in the scandal of humility, receptivity, and an appropriate self-criticism. By believing the story that calls us out of the shallows of self-preservation. So embracing the prophet in our hometowns, so to speak, is not just about the moral or the social implications, but it's also about the missional. Sometimes hometown is being interrupted for what God is calling us to next. The prophetic witness is not just about right and wrong, it's also about change and, challenge and calling. When in, uh, in 2012, John Hall, who will be in our next service to baptize his own granddaughter, uh, recruited me to plant. He first proposed the idea to me uh, to plant a church. It felt absolutely absurd. Or rather, it felt like something so wrong that honestly, viscerally, my body rejected it. Like, actually, underneath it was a little bit of a feeling like, please, God, don't let this be what you're doing. Ugh. It tasted like something bad. 
How, after working for seven years, laboring bivocationally at two jobs with two young children, laboring to revitalize what was then a, a growing church, and finally being able to be full-time there, how would God call me to leave it and start over? Who would even pay for it? Everybody I know goes to the church I'm pastoring, and they won't want me to leave. Who's going to pay for this? In his call to me and Ashley to plant, the Lord was also revealing a sense of entitlement and a very selective willingness in my heart. I just didn't know that yet. Success can be dangerous like that, can it? It can get real comfortable. But Jesus was calling me to examine myself and to look out upon the world with a prophetic imagination that was wholly dependent on what he saw and I couldn't. I felt our path should be linear, uninterrupted, safe, comfortable, and the result of merit. You see what's lying under that. All kinds of entitlement. But here we are, village. And it's not because I am an exemplar of faith. Hardly. I struggled for two years. I had a shouting match with John Hall. I'm simply saying the hometown in my heart threatened to reject the ministry of Jesus. I'm saying it's always hard when the prophet comes to town. But it's always better than what you already think you know, think you have, and think you need. We need something more than the Nazareth of our settling. More than our default understanding, more than our emotions. We need our truth beyond our control, beyond our maintenance, beyond our domestication and our manipulation. We need the Jesus who actually is, the Jesus we actually need, the Jesus who really was and is and is to come. And lastly, the church really is a new Nazareth of sorts, if you think about it. Jesus lives in us and with us as he promised, and we're always being prophetically called to embrace the scandal of the human God, the divine man, who is the prophetic voice calling us beyond what our eyes can see, what our minds can grasp, and what our hands can make. And when that happens, the new Nazareth of the church becomes a beacon, a light on a hill. An imperfect, otherwise short-sighted people open to challenge, open to change for the sake of the truth and for the freedom that truth brings. Paul said that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is being made known. He goes on to say basically to every power, every would-be power that might attempt to steer the destiny of the world. The kingdom is given to the church, reborn of water and of spirit in all our ordinary and flawed humanity. We're the people with whom Christ reigns and resides and the people who receive him continually as the prophet to challenge us. The church should be the first to recognize our own sin. We should be the first to recognize the systemic sin that winds its way around us and the world tighter and tighter. We should be the first people to embrace the prophetic ministry of challenge, the first to repent that is woven into our history and into our spiritual DNA. Let judgment begin with the house of God, says Peter. He's calling his own number to be challenged. And he's calling our number. Can we say, so be it, Lord? Can we say, amen? Call our number, Lord. Know this. Don't forget this. When the voice of the prophet rings out, 
When the challenge of holy faith reverberates through the gospel, the very air it rides is love. It's love. It's the love of a father whose own holy son died for us and whose spirit pours this love out into our hearts. Over and over and over, Old Testament and New, the challenge to God's people came wrapped in the reminder of their deliverance, the reminder of his promise, the reminder of his faithfulness, the reminder of his undying love to them. No matter how small their faith, stubborn their attitudes, or stiff their necks, his forgiveness and his longing was for them. Brothers and sisters, his longing is for you, for us. He loves you. Let him speak. Let him speak. Let him do his work. Do you believe it? Amen. Lord, help us to believe it. Help us to receive you. Say what you want to say, Lord Jesus. Help us to receive it and to hear it, for it to change us, that we might move from glory to glory, from faith to faith, from grace to grace, Lord, and from where we are now to what you have in store for us. In your name we pray. Amen.